Welcome to the Backstage with Millionaires podcast. I'm Caleb, and today I'm joined by Will Poole. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's a technologist. He's a corporate leader. He's an investor. Uh, you're originally from Seattle, uh, but started to discover sort of value, I guess, or opportunities in emerging tech ecosystems like, for example, India all the way back in 2003. Um, you're also the co-founder and managing partner of Unitas Ventures, as well as Capria Ventures. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what those things are, what those funds are uh, a little bit later in the conversation. But first, I want to know, back in 2003, you first came to India working with Microsoft. I believe you were leading their Windows global expansion team at that time. Uh, so how does India in 2003 compare to India in, in 2022? Well, let me give you the, the, the reason why I started coming here, because I'm running, in this case, a $10 billion business. Um, it was actually our, our Windows desktop business, which everybody either loves or hates. Um, and, uh, and we had 90% market share at the time. Well, when you got 90% market share, you don't try to squeeze the next 10% out of the place where you are. You got to go a place where you don't have market share, where the market isn't developed yet, and, and help it develop. And so I strapped my ass to an airplane along with many of my colleagues, and we went out to emerging markets to understand them and, and to really see how you could grow the PC market, particularly in consumer and SMB space. And this is long before the mobile revolution came to India, and, um, but it was, uh, you know, technology was, was definitely being embraced. And, um, and that's how I started coming to, uh, to Bangalore and, and, and actually traveling around India pretty regularly. Do you guys also look at other uh, ecosystems, other markets at that time, like for example, China or some other countries, or was it all, all of them? All of them. I okay. used to I used to do once a quarter world tours going through the as they were called the BRICS at the time, um, and it's actually BRIC MT. So um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Mexico, Turkey. Um, those those were the, the the big ones at that moment. Um, obviously, others have have grown up since. Um, so uh, yes, a lot, a lot of time in airplanes, um, and, and we of course had teams on the ground and everything. But I, I actually particularly fell in love with India when one of my colleagues um, at, on the senior exec staff asked me if I would be effectively the most senior business leader to regularly come to India and uh, and really help the subsidiary here get going, um, and and to be the guy that understands India for the exec staff of, of Microsoft. We had somebody else that did that in China, somebody else that did that in Russia, right? So so I I uh, I picked India. Were you excited about that? Were you happy about that? Or was India a place that you sort of struggled to spend time in initially? Well, I didn't really know. I, I, I traveled all over the world, uh, and, and both business and pleasure, and I'd never been to India. So um, I was a little bit hesitant at first, but I said, hey, got to learn new things. And uh, I, of course, I knew many Indian uh, people that worked for me, and I'd work, you know, colleagues and, and, and employees there. And, and so I, I knew there's lots of talent here, and, and technology was going. But you know, it's it's a, a bit of a, a stretch to, to think about how you're going to go and really start building a growing a technology business in a place that's as, as uh, chaotic as this was back in 2003. Right. So. Yeah. Bengaluru back then, I think that was sort of I guess there were waves of entrepreneurship and startups happening back then, but they were quite small. And I think only people that were really part of those ecosystems were even noticing that they were happening, whereas yeah. I think after Flipkart, a lot of these. Uh, this, is, this is way before Flipkart. Yeah, they became household names. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it actually started with e-commerce uh, back Correct. in the day, which. Yeah. I yeah. Think and, and the thing that I so I, people ask me, so when did you see that things were going to change? And, and look, I've, I've been an early 
adopter technologist. Um, you know, all my career, I started doing programming in high school, like many people, well, not that many back then, but it was a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I've seen how technology can evolve and, and, and really impact society in a big way. And, and I said, hey, there's a lot of people here that are aspiring to, to move up in life, um, that are, have means, it may not be a lot, but they, they have money. And, and if you can give them something that's relevant to their life, it's gonna help them or their kids succeed, and you can make it affordable and available, yeah, you can probably do pretty well. And that's how we got going. And the thing that really turned it though was the mobile revolution. And, and I, so that started in 2004, really kicked in in 2005. And, and I actually had a way that I described this to people back at the, in, in Seattle. I'd say, hey, um, I look at the number of cows on the street versus the number of mobile phone stores. And, and as soon as the number of mobile phone stores started to eclipse the number of cows walking around the street, I knew something big was happening. And, and that's, uh, that's really when, when that started happening. Now, of course, these were not smartphones back then but they were growing and they're getting used by everybody. And, and so we actually looked at building new strategies that weren't involved just in PCs, but also around mobile phone delivered services, which obviously is where, where the world's evolved very rapidly. Definitely, yeah. And I think especially kickstarted by the advent of geo and like super affordable data around 2016, 2017. Well, I say that that was, it was kickstarted long before geo, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. That's, that's further pushed it out more out into India 2 and India 3. Um, into the rural areas. Um, the, the fact that you can buy a coconut from a guy on a bicycle using GPay in a rural, rural India um, is, blows my mind even to this day. Right. And, yeah, that's that's kind of leads me to my next uh, question or sort of the question that I'd asked before, which is how, you know, how different uh, was India then versus now? I'm, you know, we didn't have QR codes, UPI, digital payments, mobile phones, as you said, were just sort of becoming a thing, handheld little, you know, tiny little probably Nokia phones or, or whatever. Um, besides that, what were some of the big changes that you've seen in the last two decades uh, as India has evolved and become much more startup friendly? Well, the traffic has actually gotten worse. Um, it was bad and it's gotten worse and Bengaluru in particular. It was bad even in 2003? It was. Oh, no. It was. I, I'd ask my team, how long will it take to get to wherever we're going next? I said, oh, an hour. Like, doesn't matter how far it is, it's at least an hour. So that's how we had to schedule things. So that, that hasn't changed that much. It's, it's, it's gotten worse. Um, now, look, the, 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 what, one key thing is that being an entrepreneur um, was not something that a family would aspire their child to do. Um, working in a startup, they wouldn't even want back then, right? And so they, they wanted, they, the number one is, is to be an engineer, number two is to be a doctor, number three is to work for a multinational, right? Um, and, and so the idea that your daughter or son would go and get a job in a startup that you've never heard of before and take a risk and maybe a lower salary and get these things called ESOPs and who knows what those things are, I'm not so sure. Well, that's all changed. And, and, and Flipkart obviously being the, the first big exit there um, really helped it to change people's view there. And I think that's helped to su help the supply of entrepreneurial talent. Even in the 10 years that we've been investing, so starting back in 2012, um, even back then it, it was still, you know, there are plenty of people that just weren't able to get people to come to a startup because the, the parents didn't think it was a good risk profile for their child to go there. Yeah. I just the other day, actually, I, I visited for the first time Flipkart's. I think it was like one of their first offices after they moved out of their uh, apartment. And it was just a house. It was like a big sort of villa. And I can imagine, you know, back in the day, some uh, prospective employee shows up for an interview, looks at this house and they're like, oh, I don't think my parents are going to approve of me working at this company. But the people who did 
joined the company in the early days, made obviously, yeah, made pretty good money. So, so that, that's certainly one thing that's changed. Um, obviously, as you said, um, not just mobile phones, but, but smartphones with affordable data, that's changed everything. Um, and, and I think that um, the, the view that technology is an enabler of a better life it's not just for entertainment, it's not just for work, but it actually is overall a better life. That, that's become well accepted. And that again, wasn't, wasn't well accepted um, 20 years ago when, when I first started coming here and, and, and certainly it was only just starting 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely seen that also with ed tech, especially since the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic I feel like was the beginning of a, a pretty big wave for Indian startups which a lot of people didn't see. Most people thought it was going to be a slump. Things would slow down. And they did for a little while, but then they picked up and then they like accelerated to a point where nobody had ever seen before. Well, look, we, we had a couple of companies whose revenue literally went to zero in the pandemic. You interviewed one recently with, uh, at DriveView um, and their revenue went to zero until they managed to figure out how to, how to switch it over to, to the B2B side of the world. And we had others that had similar challenges. But the, the Indian entrepreneur is an amazing creature. Um, they, they, they figure out how to get through rough times. And, and I, 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 that's one reason why I, lo I love coming here. It's just that the, the got applied to everything. Um, it's here. And so the pandemic really brought out the best in that. And, um, and we did not have any of our companies fail because of the pandemic, which frankly surprised us. It really wow. did. I, I, we thought that we would, we'd lose one or two. Um, could, so. could that be because of the sectors and the markets that you focus on with your investments? Um, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I'll, I'll give it first, just credit to the entrepreneurs. Um, and, and we did help them and support them. Um, but, um, but yeah, the sectors we're in are ones that it's actually part of our core investment thesis, which is we look for companies that are providing something that's pretty essential to somebody, whether, whether it's uh, education, uh, healthcare, uh, loans and financial products. These are things that are just needed by people. And so the when, when bad things happen, be it a pandemic or an economic slowdown or whatever, the essentials tend to get prioritized. The non-essentials go away, right? And so from that perspective, yes, our, our sectoral choices that we've been making for over a decade now certainly helped us. But uh, but again, I, I give it credit to the the entrepreneurs who, who just figure out how, and they had to you know, make hard, hard decisions and layoffs and things like that at times, but they also figured out how to pivot their businesses. One amazing story with that is QMath, so they were doing after school in-person uh, uh, education, right? So math, math education. Um, and it was, it was like 85, 90% in-person. And they were just trialing doing online um, and before the pandemic. Pandemic happens within eight weeks. They've got their entire set of teachers sh shifted over to doing 100% online. And, and what that did is that then opened up, well, hey, teachers online, they can take care of kids that are in Dubai and Middle East. They can take kids in the U.S., depending on what, what hours they're willing to work. Um, and, and now their business is just growing like crazy. And, and it's very good business. Their teachers make more money because they're selling into higher cost markets. Um, they're continuing to service uh, you know, the, the kids in, in locally as needed. Um, but uh, their business is, is remarkably better because of the pandemic. And, and because of their ability, though, again, to their credit, to, to pivot that quickly. And, and to really um, embrace what was happening and, and, and turn, as they say, lemons into lemonade. Yeah. I think another component here, too, to the success of a lot of uh, your portfolio investments is that you invest specifically in founders who actually understand their business and understand they know their unit economics. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're 
you know, that they're profitable or anything like that, but at least they understand, right? So when something happens, when a pandemic hits or there's a, you know, a funding winter or whatever, you know, anything can happen, right? That they're actually, they have a strong handle in their business, which I don't necessarily think is something that all VCs focus on. Maybe they're just really sold on the vision and the charisma of the founder. And they're just like, here, take, take a bunch of money. I can't speak for other VCs. I can speak for the founders that we pick and, and you accurately describe them. Um, they, they don't get our money if they don't understand unit economics. It's that simple. Um, and, uh, and now there's complexities, right? So there's a question of you know, how do you define the unit? And we could talk for hours about this, but, but fundamentally if they don't know and we can't get our thesis of how they are going to scale and be making more money as their business scales, not less, right? Because if you're losing money every unit, selling more unit doesn't, doesn't make you more money. Um, and so if they know how that, that, that scaling is going to really create a profitable business over time, that that's what we get excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys get excited about, uh, profitability profits, but you also focus on values as well, which I think is another interesting component of Unitas and probably to a, to a certain extent Capria as well. So could you just explain that, uh, profit and values, uh, approach? it's a really simple observation, which is that. You can take a short-term maximization strategy. And in fact, we're seeing those that are suffering from it in here in, in India today, and actually around the world, frankly, um, which is those that are growth at all costs. And if you take short-term uh, optimization strategy, you will often actually hurt actors in the ecosystem around you, uh, stakeholders and so on. Uh, a great example of that is when Ola was uh, putting a high subsidy to enable the drivers to pay the EMIs on their cars. As soon as they took that that extra um, payment off, all of a sudden those drivers are spending 14, 16, 18 hours a day just trying to pay, pay their EMIs, living in their cars. It was horrible, right? And 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 these are people that put their life savings or, or their family's life savings, you know, into buying a car that they no longer can afford. And a lot of them, of course, got left by the side of the road. And that's a good example where a growth at any cost causes caused immense harm to, in this case. Some of these fundamentally to the success of Ola was the drivers, the driver partners. And so we look for entrepreneurs that understand that you can make a decision as an entrepreneur to grow a business in such a way that your values are sustained through the growth of business. And that will, in our view, lead to longer term, higher profits. And we, we want to have that conversation with entrepreneurs and make sure that our, we're values aligned on that front. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, because so many Indian people generally, but also I think first time Indian startup founders, this is maybe their first time interacting with uh, VC firms and angel investors. A lot of them are discovering entrepreneurship for the first time because of uh, that wave that I was talking about that started from the pandemic. Also, you know, uh, these sort of cultural events like uh, Shark Tank India really popularized starting up for the first time for a lot of people. Um, and I think maybe one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have is that the all VCs are just pushing for this like profits at or growth at any cost and not really focusing on profitability and even encouraging loss making sometimes as well, just for, you know, for the sake of growth. Well, let, let, let's be clear. OK, we have plenty of companies in our portfolio that are loss making. All right. That, yeah, that, that's OK with us. All right. And, and that's what that is, the, that is. That is the nature of venture capital. This is not private equity. Right. So so we're going to have loss making companies that are going to be doing that for some number of years. But we want to see the path to profitability and, and then know that when the time is right, we can get there. And obviously, uh, the pandemic came along. And it's like, OK, you may not be able to raise money. You're going to have revenue down. How, how are we going to get there? How can we at least have a 12 to 18 month runway? Um, so and again, you have to take some pain to get there. Same thing when the funding winter comes, you say, 
18 to 24 months runway is what you need. And that doesn't mean you have to be profitable at that moment, but you've got to be able to probably weather a difficult period, um, show that you can do that such that you can then attract capital uh, when, when capital is available. Sure. Yeah. So that's I mean, that's one of the one of the misconceptions that I've heard is that uh, it's all, you know, the VCs, the VCs are to blame. Right. They're the ones who are pushing these founders some, to take to take these actions. Some are to blame. There's no question. Depends. Yeah, it depends okay. on the firm. And you, you'll talk to founders. They'll tell you I wouldn't have done that if my board hadn't pushed me there. Right. OK, so so there some are to blame. Yeah. What are some of the other misconceptions um, that maybe the Indian it's not even about India, really. It's just sort of emerging ecosystems that are a lot of people and a lot of like first time founders are interacting with VCs for the first time. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that you've seen around around the, that? Well, I'd say the biggest misconception is they think that it's the same as the U.S. or Europe, and it's just not. Um, and and, and the, there's lots of reasons why not, but, but one of the primary issues is the liquidity of the underlying company. And, um, and one reason why VCs can make a lot of bets, pretty risky bets in, in Silicon Valley, West Coast, Seattle, wherever it might be in New York, is that they know if they've got a good team, the team has done a decent job building something Unless it product market fit just doesn't pan out the way it's expected. Um, unit economics end up, the margins are just not that good. It's just somebody else comes along, does a little bit better. Chances are they can sell that company to somebody else. Okay, there's a robust M&A market. And, and that means that you, you might only get a 1.5x, but you don't get a 0x. All right, so the M&A market in, in, in the global south, that's, that's our, our domain broadly, right? That's Mexico on south, uh, Cairo in south. India and Southeast Asia, that's, that's where we look. And uh, the M&A markets there are anywhere from nascent to non-existent. And so your ability to then end up with a zero is much higher. So your risk um, is, you're taking is much higher, particularly in an early stage entrepreneur. But if they've been the Y Combinator or they've got a you know, cousin, brother-in-law or whatever who's, who started a company in the US or Europe, they think that they should be paid the same. And so that's a valuation challenge that we occasionally have, particularly with first-time entrepreneurs. Right. There's plenty of other things that are different, um, but but that that would be one. Um, I think that the uh, talent availability is actually more of the same, and and that's that's what's one reason why we're so excited um, there about about the global south is that the the talent is everywhere, and so as soon as you get enough of an ecosystem there, and, and we could talk about that as being a difference now. Um, but once there's enough ecosystem there, the talent can then build companies, grow, and 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 ultimately, you know, really succeed. Now, if you don't have enough well well developed ecosystem, if there aren't enough players to come to give follow on funding, then again, that company is going to languish, or that company is going to get started but not going to be able to put the pedal to the metal because they don't have the capital they need to really grow it because there's you know maybe only one or two series a investors and there's a hundred seed companies that have been funded and the two series a guys um aren't interested in your sector you're screwed so um or you have to wait until somebody comes from overseas or blah 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 so i think that that will be another thing that's different um, across the global south is the state of the vc ecosystem is not as rich and as well developed and therefore funding takes longer and um and, and rounds are smaller and so on and that again ultimately affects how fast the company can grow. The speed of the company growth depend is going to affect fundamentally the value of the company and its ability to compete in the global marketplace. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think probably when you guys first entered India with Unitas, uh, that was back in twenty. 
Uh, we formed our management company in, in uh, just 10 years ago, July 2012, and we um, launched the fund in 2013 yeah. here, here in Bigelow. Yeah. Even back then, I would imagine that it was, I mean, it definitely wasn't what it is now in terms of the, the richness of the VC ecosystem. Uh, not even close. Uh, there, there are a handful of, of good good VCs here. I think Sequoia was already here. Uh, Matrix. A Excel. May, uh, Excel, May Mayfield. So, so the big Valley names, um, probably different teams than they are now, Yeah. but but they, they were here. But not a lot else. It's actually almost all overseas money. So we're actually really proud that a third of the, of the money in our first fund came from domestic sources, oh. which we worked hard to do. Um, and um, but but yes, the, the the ecosystem was still you know in its nascent stage. Um, and and I, in fact, I got quizzed by an investor um, in Seattle. He said, "So, Will, how, how many fifty million dollar venture capital funded companies are there in India right now?" Like, uh, well, I'm not really sure that that many of those. He said, well, you know, if you can't point a bunch of $50 million companies, you know, how are you ever going to make any money here? I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Um, but that, that's my job. Look around the corner a little ways. He said, yeah, well, I'll pass. Well, you know, and, and here we are 10, just 10 years later, and we had the 100th unicorn minted here. So, yeah. Um, so things, do, it, they happen very fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was this big, big unicorn. I don't know if you would call it like a, a bubble. Uh, I think things have really slowed down this year. Uh, in 2022 as compared to 2021. I remember we were covering the news here at Backstage with Millionaires and like it was every week, sometimes like multiple unicorns every week, which was so exciting. Well, number 100 just happened, you know, a month or two ago. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But def I think- uh, It has slowed down. Yeah, sure. we don't, I don't have the number with me, but it was like 40 plus in 2021. Right. But um, anyways, earlier you were talking about uh, the M&A market hmm. um, and I wanted to bring it back to that because I think this is again a lot of founders for the first time are looking at potentially their first acquisition um and there's a lot of pitfalls um for founders and also for uh the the, the acquirer right the company that's actually buying uh, a smaller company and i wanted to know you've written a little bit about this um so i wanted to know what are some of the pitfalls that you see um for both the acquiring company and the acquired company um, and maybe even some of the misconceptions or things where people get stuck. Uh, I'd love to get your take on that. Well, I, I can tell you, I've been around this for a long time. I sold my first, I sold my second company. My first one didn't work. My second one I sold when I was 24 in 1985. That was eShop Inc.? No, no. This is 10 years before that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so that was my first acquisition. What, uh, what, what market was that in? Uh, we were doing uh, utilities for uh, backup utilities for PC. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the, uh, we had on, 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 we were on eight bit stuff before, before the PC, this is, I think maybe before you were born, I don't know. Very likely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, but we had automated backup solutions for the PC anyhow. So, so I sold that company, learned a lot about going through that, um, uh, ended up, uh, at some microsystems for a while, saw some acquisitions that we brought in there. Um, went and did another startup in the Bay Area, which then turned into eShop, which is the one we sold to Microsoft in 96. So I was on the sell side of acquisitions twice of my own startups um, prior to them being at Microsoft, being on the buy side, seeing a bunch that came in. Um, one of them famously was not bought by my group. Um, this is right around the dot-com boom. They were doing a, a Dropbox-like solution, so storage in the sky. Um, and the company was purchased and the founders never showed up. <laughs> they they made enough money. They didn't have the, the, the structure didn't have enough handcuffs for them. They're like, yeah, we don't want to go to Seattle. It's too rainy up there. So they literally never shut up. Get whatever's left on the table is just gone. Um, so so anyhow, the, the acquisitions 
I guess the first thing for people to know is that most of them don't happen in the first place. Um, and so you think that you're going to get acquired. Don't tell people about it. Um, chances are it won't happen. Um, and for any number of good reasons, um, sometimes for bad reasons. But again, that, that, that's the first thing. They, they, they don't happen. Second is um, on the, in, the venture integration is, is really hard. That's the thing that often goes wrong. So you have the honeymoon where the deal is cut, everybody's okay with the finances and, and you kind of move into the new office and then it starts, the hard work starts, right? How do you get the sales forces merged? How do you decide which brand is re relevant? How do you get the technology stacks put together? Um, what do you do about throwing away some old tech? What do you do about if your tech's better than the acquiring company's tech? How do you get your engineers to work together? So venture integration is the truly hard part of back end unseen challenges of acquisitions and it's where many acquisitions actually fail for the acquirer remember the acquiree has gotten a check paid to them and their their, their investors they're probably pretty happy maybe there's some earnout involved which is another complicated thing but for the acquirer they often underestimate the um, challenges organizational challenges and costs of doing great venture integration and and the companies that are really good at this have been doing it for a while are the ones that actually can can acquire and, and be successful at that. Um, I was talking to somebody recently that told me that, um, except for one, all of the founders uh, that Byju's has acquired, all this, all the founders are still there. Um, now that tells you something. He, so he, he's got something, uh, either he's got really good golden handcuffs, maybe, um, but he also he probably is able to attract these founders to, to get them to be excited about being a part of a new organization. And that's hard. Um, so I'd say that that's something as a founder, you got to really think about, which is not just what happens to get the deal closed, but what happens after the deal is closed. What's it going to be like? Yeah. Yeah. That's Baiju's is probably a great, uh, like a success story. We also have stories like, for example, snap deal where they went on this acquisition spree and then kind of shut down soon after. Right. Um, you've also got a more recent example, which not sure how it's going to play out, but, um, Zomato's acquisition of Blinkit and all of the hidden costs associated with that as well. Yeah, so so I one of our um, very successful portfolio companies from Fund One is called Better Place, and um, I've been counseling the the co-founders uh, there for some time about what it's going to be like to go and do some acquisitions because they had some great opportunities, and I think they've done five in the past two years, um, and and a couple of them to round out the product line to to add new aspects of the platform that, that they can sell to their existing customers and a couple of them to get them access to new markets. And, and those are two very good reasons to, to acquire companies. There's two good, very good reasons to be acquired if you're on the founder side, right? Become part of a bigger thing, um, to be an important part of a bigger thing and, um, and, and really go along for a, a good growth story. Okay, changing gears here a little bit. Um, Capria is all over the world, right? You guys are investing in the Middle East well, and Africa. Global South, to be clear. Global South, yeah, exactly. Emerging tech hotspots, uh, exactly. Latin America as well. You've got Southeast Asia. Big emphasis, of course, on India. Capria manages Unitas Ventures. So that makes a lot of sense because that was where you had originally focused your attention on. Um, but in a lot of these ecosystems, do you find that people are looking up to India the way that maybe India looks up to China and the United States? Like, what are they doing over there in India and sort of trying to see like if they can copy some of those ideas? That, that, that's actually one of the insights that we had with Capria was that the same kinds of companies are being created in these emerging economies just at different times. And so if we can bring the knowledge of, again, we have a set of sectors we operate in and 
Um, and within that set of sectors, we can bring knowledge of that to looking at a new deal um, or partnering with somebody who's, who's got deals. Um, we can actually have a little, little bit of in, inside information there, right? Historical information, access to information about, you know, what does the margin structure look like for a uh, intra-city mobility trucking company in a, uh, in a big city of 8 million people? We know that because we have an investment in one, right? And so we can go and look at another one in another, in another big city in another market and say, hey, do these guys have their shit together or not, right? And so, um, so that, that really was the, the insight of, of how we get to have an, an edge in investing um, through the, in the Capri strategy. Um, I think that uh, if you were to say what, what is the pecking order, if you will, of, of evolved venture ecosystems outside of the U.S. and outside of the, the global north, um, uh, China obviously is the biggest by far. And, and everybody is going to look at that and, and say, hey, we'd like to imagine that we're going to be the next one of those. Um, I think the, the Indonesia is um, very much you know, likes to think of themselves as the next China. And, and Vietnam maybe likes to think of themselves as the next Indonesia. Um, and uh, how they compare themselves to India, I'd say that they see a lot of similarities. Um, I think that the v VC ecosystem, startup ecosystem is, is quite a bit stronger uh, just because of the size of, of India and the single, uh, single market with this 1.4 billion is just can't help but, but growing companies bigger, faster. Um, in Latin America, they certainly are interested. Um, and Africa is, they're interested in seeing what's happened here and what, what, what can be learned from that. Um, Africa is going to be trailing in some areas, but not all. Um, you've got you know, a billion plus people, but you've got 54 countries. And so that adds a lot of complexity. Um, and, uh, but if you had asked me five years ago, will there be unicorns in West Africa? I'd say, I don't think so in the next five years, and I would be wrong. Um, and so it, it really has surprised many people how fast things can grow there when the entrepreneurs get it right. So going back to my earlier point that there's great talent everywhere, that is true. There's no question. And so if you get the right uh, ecosystem value around them so, so that they can you know, get the, you know, a little bit of co coaching and mentoring at times, but really the capital they need, the connections into other markets, um, they can take off in, in any of these places. Yeah. Um, so one thing, though, is that you guys chose intentionally not to go into the Chinese market with Capria, which I think is interesting, uh, sort of looking at how complicated it is and all the government oversight and regulations um, for an international VC firm, whereas you did focus on India. And I wanted to know, over the last two decades or so, how much easier has it gotten in India to do business mm -hmm. and to invest uh, as an international investor? It's actually gotten some easier and some harder, um, and it's it's a bit of a challenge. I'm, I I I would say this to their face if they asked me, but I'm not super happy with where the regulators have been going um, relative to the the domestic Indian venture capital funds called AIF. Um, the regulations have, have been adding adding complexity. It's not standard to the world, and their intent is to protect Indian investors, but their execution is not good. And it ultimately is going to chase money offshore um, because because unless you say that money can't come in from offshore, which they can never afford to do, you, you've got to have foreign investment. Basically, they're, they're making disincentives for domiciling venture capital funds here in India. Hmm. Um, now, uh, on the other hand, you know, creating businesses um, and those businesses operating has gotten easier. Still, it's hard to shut them down, which is which is an issue, but but getting them going is definitely easier. And the India stack has done amazing things to, if you will, lubricate the uh, 
everything needs to get get moving. So from from payments to uh, to identity and everything else, making that easier, India is actually second to none in the world. Absolute un, un, unequivocal leader in that, and I think that has been enabling startups to to grow much better and faster. And I give uh, immense uh, respect to Nanda Milikani for what he did and, and pulling that through across two administrations, right? That that started under Congress and and managed to to stay under BGP. Um, not easy to do that, and uh, so Indi India Stack is a is a giant assistant to uh, accelerant of uh, of startups here, and, and as at Health Stack and other things, it'll continue in other domains. And I think they're doing education as well for some time too. Yeah, that's definitely that's an interesting. Uh, I I I honestly didn't expect that answer, but I haven't researched the topic that much. Uh, I recently invested into this company uh, as a founder, um, just buying my initial stake, and it was it was really challenging. Um, mm. You guys are obviously doing things at a <laughs> totally different scale, but that was an FDI, and uh, it took nine months. So yeah, it was maybe you had some bad advice there. I, I mean, call me, I'll help you out. Okay, <laughs> so, um, but no, it, I mean we, we've been doing it for ten years, so we have a system that we got people that know how to do it, and, and our one of our founding partners here. I was doing it for many years before that. So, so if you know the ropes, uh, it's it's not that big of an issue. Yeah, I think and, it was and because we, and we bring both foreign money in regularly as well as our domestic money through our, our AIF here. Um, and uh, and there, there's complexity in paperwork, but as long as you know how to navigate it, it's okay. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm again, I'm talking on a relative basis. There are other countries which are just way way harder. Um, and so, um, so I think that's that's good. And you're seeing that, right? Look at the number of startups that are that are here, right? So. We're, we're, the country is definitely, uh, I think, very, very friendly to, to, to startups compared to many others in emerging economies. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask you one, uh, another question, totally different uh, topic here, sort of VC 101, um, which is what happens to a fund if after, say, a decade, I know usually the cycle is about eight to 12 years, if it doesn't show uh, an ROI to the LPs? Um, well, they, they, don't, they don't wait a decade, my friend. <laughs> they, they can tell pretty <laughs> they, early on. Of course, we, we, yeah. we tell them once a quarter um, where things are. Yeah. So, so our quarterly LP reports. Then now, there's a there's a thing called the J curve, which is a it's this is inside information about how venture capital works. But if you think about it, it's very straightforward. The, the value of the fund starts off being at zero, and then you put a bunch of money in it, and then the question is, does the value go up or down after that money is put in? Well, the answer is it actually goes down initially. And the reason for that is because you have the cost of initially deploying capital, that's expenses, and you might have some early failures in startups. If you're in an early stage and you go 12, 18 months in and the company's not there, so it goes, right? So, so that's the J curve, you go down and then you look for coming back up again. So once it comes up to 1.0, meaning that the value of what's there is at least 1x of what's been put in, that's a happy moment for investors. Now it's, it's unrealized, right? It's not, not delivered back yet, but at least the paper value is back to what they put in. And then it goes up and up and up. And what you look for is that paper value ultimately getting to be three, four, five, six times what the initial value went in. And then you start looking at the distributed value, meaning how much comes out um, of the fund. And again, when the distributed amount comes out, gets over 1.0, everybody's happy. So back to your question around 10 years. So we're, everybody's watching that every quarter, right? Um, and you expect it to go down, you expect the paper to come up, paper value to come up. And, um, and if you're getting into years you know, six, seven, or eight, and you haven't started to actually distribute some good money and showing a paper value that's you know, a good multiple, 
then sure, there's going to be pressure from limited partners on the partners to say, hey, what are you doing to create value here? What are you doing to make sure that you can get value from the investments you've made? Got it. Okay. So it's mainly just pressure. There isn't any kind of, uh, they can't really do much beyond that, right? They cannot invest in your next fund. Right. Which That's, you guys at Capri are onto your second fund now. We're under our second Capri fund. We've, we're just doing our third and fourth funds for India. So, so safe um, to say that your LPs are very confident. Well, ask me in six months uh, once I got the money in the bank, but uh, <laughs> I'm feeling good right now. Where, where's the second fund at on that J curve? Uh, all of our funds are out of the J curve. So across the board, which is great, particularly even our, our global uh, Capria fund of funds is out of the J curve, which is um, a bit surprising, which I'm really happy with. Um, and uh, and so they're starting to move into the multiples of, of, of invested capital. And um, so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic long term player here. Right. The, yeah. the, uh, we don't make any money until we've delivered 1.0 back to our investors, at which point we then make 20 percent of the profits. So once you've delivered that that one X, then you start actually seeing some cash in the bank from your hard work for what will take many years. Yeah. So you obviously, I think you and uh, your partner spend a lot of time across the table from startup founders like myself. Uh, a lot of us are pitching to you guys. We're sharing our ideas. And I feel like the conversation that happens a lot of the time is, you know, great idea. Love it. I see a lot of uh, potential success for you, but it's just not my area of expertise. Or, you know what, it's a little too early for me to invest, but come back, you know, a little bit later on. And it's sort of something that I've heard from a lot of startup founders where they'll pitch to a VC, they'll they'll say no, the VC will say no. And then it's like, good luck and send them on their way without really telling them what they could do better uh, or, you know, why the pitch didn't go well. And so they're kind of there's this big question mark. And I wanted to know as a VC yourself, why does that and you've also been a startup founder, right? So you've seen both sides. Why, why does that happen? Um, and how can founders get the most out of their their pitch meetings? Well, let me give you a couple of answers. First of all, if you get a no back, that's actually progress. OK, there's many VCs will say, oh, we're thinking about it. <laughs> all right. So we actually one thing we pride ourselves on is saying no. Um, and and and, and if, the quicker your no is, the better. Right. Because you don't want to waste their time. Um, and now, but we look at lots of deals, lots of deals come to us. And, and one of the ways you get smart about what you want to do next is to look at the founders are smarter than we are in these things. Right. So we got to listen to them. Um, and then, but we got to say, look, is, is the formula right? And, and, or not, and it's yes, no, maybe. Right. And, and it's a process you go through and, um, often the decisions are made fairly quickly on the no front. Um, but the question is, is that communicated and is the why communicated? And the answer is some VCs say so, most don't. Now, I can tell you that in India, one of the reasons why you don't always say why no, because they come back and argue with you. And I'm not kidding. OK, so so our, I, for a long time, when we were first getting going, I'd say, hey, guys, we should just give them a little bit more clarity on why no. And they say there's no margin in that because they want to argue. And so every 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 bullet point you'd give them in feedback will look, come back and say, no, no, you got it wrong. Maybe you did get it wrong. It's still a no. OK, there's no way there's nobody for who's heard a no that's gone back and reconvinced that VC to change their mind based on their arguments against why no. OK, so that would be one reason why why people don't give that information. 
That's a great um, that's a great uh, advice um, though for Indian startup founders. Don't don't uh, argue with. I, there's no margin in it. Now now look, if you came to me and pitched me a business, and and I, I would really try to say, look, it's not a fit, and 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 here's the three or four reasons why it's not a fit, right? Now not a fit is different than, I think you're not smart. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying your business is just not a business that fits into our portfolio. Now, one other thing that founders can do is look at the portfolio of the VC. You would be amazed at how many founders will come and pitch us things via email. We don't let them in person that just aren't anything like anything we've invested in ever. Why would we why they possibly think that we'd invest in that? So, you know, somebody comes and pitches investing in a a brick and mortar hospital and um, like, Sorry, we're an asset light venture capital company. Why do you think we'd want to build a hospital, right? Well, well you have a healthcare company, right? So, so I think that that's an important thing is, is if, a, if, a, if a founder invests enough time to understand what we do and, and then brings us an idea, they'll be much more likely to get some positive feedback from us and saying, hey, here's why it doesn't fit, right? We might say, hey, you know, we've looked at six other companies like this and we think it's going to be a bloodbath. That might be one reason. That might be good information for the founder to know that, right? We might say, oh, we actually have invested in a company like this already. It's competitive. Um, and, and we, as uh, respect to founders, we don't invest in, in, in directly competing companies. So there's a lot of reasons why a VC is going to say no uh, and that are helpful to, for a founder to learn. Yeah, that is very helpful. I think uh, our audience especially will be watching this and taking notes. Ask why, but don't fight, you know, don't uh, try to contradict the investor. Just take notes. Okay, he's telling me this. He's, she's telling me this. There, there's one thing you can ask is say, hey, if I were to come back to you in six months or a year and I've overcome some of these issues, are you interested in looking at it again? The answer might still be no, because again, the sectoral fit isn't there. There's competition, whatever it might be. Or it might say, yeah, if you can do those things, come back. And, and again, re- most VCs will, will be very reasonable on that front. Excellent. Well, I won't uh, take up any more of your time, Will. I really appreciate you coming over here and, and sharing all these insights. Um, again, I think our audience will be taking notes on a lot of the things you've said about international markets, about the Indian market, and also about uh, the interaction between startup founders and VCs here. Well, look, the, the reason why I do venture capital is because I love to work with founders. And I think every venture capitalist will tell you that. And it's, it's pretty uniformly true. If you don't do that, you should be in a different business. Right. Um, but uh, so I'm always happy to do things to help founders. Um, we, we publish a lot on our websites, both on United.VC and Capri.VC. So and, and those really are focused on founders. So articles that we write up there um, are, are there to help founders. So make, make use of those resources. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, we'll be putting we'll put links to those in the description of this video as well, if anyone wants to check them out. Good. Cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Will. It's a little bit of a long reach. Eh? <laughs>